Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. To talk about today, uh, <clears throat> we we might even call apocalyptic the stepchild of of Western culture, um, because for us the age of reason has so thoroughly colonized our minds and hearts. Uh, while apocalyptic literature uh, in the Bible and elsewhere um, is wild and visionary and almost uh, shamanistic in its symbolism. Uh, So that in our culture, it's forever being consigned either to the hyper-detached academic, excuse me, the the annoying fundamentalist, uh, and or the loony loony bin cultural fringe, uh, you know, by the dominant culture. Uh, And I think there are two issues here. Um, The the obvious first issue is that um, we moderns just don't, understand this culturally foreign imaginary. Uh, And so in typical Western style, um, rather than uh, trying to practice some cross-cultural sophistication and respect, we we either dismiss it or we colonize it, you know, try to make it just like uh, how we would understand things. Um, But the second issue is that even when we do begin to uh, correctly contextually understand apocalyptic as a tradition of resistance literature, um, we modern types uh, find apocalyptic at once too pessimistic about the current status quo and too hopeful about redemption coming from beyond history as controlled by empire. Uh, and I, I dare say that some of my comments today you may think are at once overly pessimistic and overly hopeful. Uh, so apocalyptic remains somewhat orphaned in, in our culture. But then, you know, stuff happens uh, that piques our curiosity in these old texts. Um, now, in the 20th century, one of those things that happened was World War II. And interestingly, right after that second great war in a half century between the North Atlantic powers, Western theology suddenly takes an interest in ancient apocalyptic literature. Um, It's as if the rationalist faith had been shaken and there was now a new openness to help, um, to to find help from the deep wisdom of the past. Today, as we'll see, the crisis of climate catastrophe is again compelling contemporary imagination to return to apocalyptic imagery although this time it's not so much theologians as scientists drawing on this imagery. More on that in a moment. So this week you've been talking about elemental archetypes through the lens of Bachelard, including fire and especially in your study of Mark, water. Meanwhile, and somewhat ironically, uh, here in the Ventura River watershed, we've been kind of living it. Yesterday at the end of the presentation, I shared personally how Markin's storytelling has been important to me. Uh, Today in my uh, last hurrah, I want again be personal, even existential, 
because quite frankly, as you could see from my failure to upload um, this uh, presentation, uh, we've been kind of struggling here. The Thomas Fire <clears throat> here in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties last month, as you've probably read in the media, California's largest wildfire on record, scorching more than 280,000 acres. Um, you know, from a distance, the media reports tended to be, uh, tended toward a kind of apocalyptic sensationalism. But here on the ground and up close, it was searing, it was real, it was personal. And sometimes it was unbearable. So, for example, um, in, in the big screen here is a picture of first responders watching a trailhead burn at a local land conservancy site. All they could do was watch. This is a place we often hike. Um, we've been very active in the land conservancy movement here in the watershed, and more than um, two-thirds of the conservancy lands, beautiful uh, lands, were denuded in this fire, including our favorite places to hike. In the inset is someone running along the bike path just a couple of miles from our home, uh, dodging flames. Now, Bill knows, because he's been here, that this path is one of the gems of our valley, running 15 miles from the foothills to the beach. It goes right past our home. And now it's scorched. This is a picture of our beloved valley now, reduced to ashes. Everything you see in the mountains is, um, is denuded. This was an unprecedented wintertime fire. As one UCLA climate scientist put it, the relative humidities during the first two weeks of the Thomas Fire were much drier than what we would see in the interior Mojave Desert in the summertime. Mm -hmm. It was the driest on record. So layers of dead or dying vegetation blanketed Southern California after the hottest summer on record. And then came October and November, also the hottest on record for Southern California. The point I'm wanting to make here is that this was not normal. This picture um, on the left here, behind the cathedral-like oak in the foreground, stood the largest and oldest live oak in our watershed. It was a sacred tree if ever there were, just a couple of miles from our home. It was over 400 years old. Her trunk was the largest girth I'd ever seen on a native oak. Under the canopy of this extraordinary tree, our community has regularly prayed, studied, talked, and listened. We honored her as Grandmother Oak, the most revered elder in this bioregion. And if you visited us for any length of time, we likely took you to her to pay respects. Bill, did we ever get you over there? You got Sandra there. Okay. Yeah, and you took Sandra. Well, when the, fires, when the fires finally died down, Elaine and I went to see how this oak grove had fared. It was Christmas Day. And what we saw broke our hearts. She lay in ruins, her main branches splayed on the ground in three directions, still smoldering more than two weeks after the fire. 
I burst into tears. We stood silent for a long time, feeling bereft and orphaned. This tree, older than European colonization, a sentinel of the old ways, our Axis Mundi, had survived so much but could not survive the Thomas Fire. A beast spawned by climate catastrophe, spawned by anthropogenic hubris and carbon addiction. Quite honestly, I felt rage. The trophy home on the hill nearby had been ringed by the fire, yet it was saved. But no firefighter received instructions to defend this beloved tree. If an ancient cathedral had burned, there would be headlines and public hand-wringing and official lamentation. But in the silence of these smoking fallen branches, our grief, as the first ones to discover and mourn Grandma Oak's demise, our grief was hidden, solitary, anonymous. Like I say, it's been personal. And now, this very week, as I've been talking to you, the second wave of disasters has come in the inevitable flooding from the scarred hillsides after our first rain in 11 months. This is a picture of our local dam upstream. It's one we've been trying to take down for more than two decades. In this rain, it immediately started overflowing, good for nothing. And yet, the state bureaucracies won't move to decommission it. Meanwhile, about 40 minutes north of us is a beloved and beautiful Catholic retreat center in Montecito called Casa de Maria. The grounds preserve canyon oak savanna and rare habitat along the San Isidro Creek. It's been a big part of my life for a quarter century. Our first two Bartimaeus Institutes were held here in 2007 and 8. And last month, when we had to evacuate, it was the place we took refuge on the first night of the fire. Just after talking with you yesterday, I learned that Casa de Maria had been overrun by debris flow. It took more than half their campus. I'm sorry, it's still a little bit raw. Yeah. The venerable chapel in which we and so many friends have sat so many times, now filled with mud. More than 20 people have died in this neighborhood this week, and over 2,000 structures have been destroyed far more than the Thomas Fire itself. So it's been loss upon loss upon loss. Mm. In a very real sense, this has been for us a profoundly apocalyptic season. And so I turn to Mark's gospel to try to make sense of it all. And I just ask you to bear with me as I try to explain how I make sense of it. 
Now, I'm a fifth-generation Californian, and I understand that wildfires are part of the natural ecology of this bioregion. I've seen the cycle of fire and flood many times. I know that life will return. But the unprecedented conditions of aridity and drought that caused this monster fire were aberrant, the result of the unrelenting greed of our carbon-based economy. In an interview on day four of the Thomas fire, a top California official called it the fastest burning fire he'd ever witnessed, and then added, I guess it's the new normal. Apparently, that's now political speak, code for climate-related weather events. But it's not normal. And the media still won't name climate catastrophe plainly. Or worse, speaks of it as if it were something being done to us rather than by us. A 2016 National Academy of Sciences study concluded last year that, quote, increased forest fire activity across the western U.S. in recent decades has contributed to widespread forest mortality. Carbon emissions, periods of degraded air quality, and substantial fire suppression expenditures have resulted. Observed warming and drying have significantly increased fire season fuel aridity. Human-caused climate change caused over half of the documented increases in fuel aridity since the 1970s and has doubled the cumulative forest fire area since 1984, end quote. In case you're wondering, on these charts, ACC stands for Anthropogenic Climate Change. So what does any of this have to do with Markan apocalyptic thought? In recent decades, you'll know that apocalyptic motifs keep popping up in our popular culture, not least in the movies. As noted, there's no biblical tradition more widely and profoundly misunderstood and misappropriated than apocalyptic. Like a strong therapeutic drug, it needs to be handled wisely because what can heal can also kill if abused. For all of these difficulties, however, I believe that apocalyptic holds an important key to discerning any given historical moment. And God knows these times demand nothing less. Apocalyptic is not about God's cataclysmic destruction of the world, as is so often assumed in popular culture. It is rather the language of those who long for the end of destructive oppression, by the imperial state, which, quite frankly, for marginalized people, is a kind of the end of the world. Apocalyptic literature arose, historically, specifically from the context of ancient empire, beginning with the era of Persian domination across antiquity, and then followed by Hellenistic rule of the Mediterranean world. These empires brought profound changes to formerly sustainable traditional lifeways. The elites <clears throat> ruled more cruelly, extracting resources and spreading slavery and fighting unending wars 
in which the poor were caught. And all of this <clears throat> was just a prelude to how Rome spread imperial rule further and deeper throughout the classical world. How were those who were poor, how were peasants supposed to resist? How were they supposed to nurture hope? The Greek word apocalypsis <clears throat> means an unmasking or unveiling. It has to do with a kind of vision that is able to see through the dominant stories of empire with its ubiquitous and not so useful fictions of national entitlement and sovereignty, its militaristic triumphalism, its seductive myths of grandeur, its severe orthodoxies of law and order. If you remember the uh, <clears throat> film of 15 years ago, The Matrix, apocalyptic peers through what the character Morpheus tells the character Neo is the world that has been pulled over our eyes. Indeed, the propaganda of empire masks the truth, distorts what it means to be human, and hijacks history for purposes of the elites. Apocalyptic, on the other hand, endeavors to pierce through that veil, to see reality from the standpoint of redemption. And it does this in two ways. It strips away layers of denial and delusion that keep us distracted to expose realities of suffering and injustice, to see the world, in other words, as it really is from the perspective of the poor and victims of violence. And then it looks again. Remember that, that verb in Mark's gospel, anablepo? It looks again. And it transfuses our dulled and dumbed down imagination with visions of the world as it really could and should be from the perspective of divine love and justice. The possibilities of a different way of being are revealed or at least glimpsed. I call this apocalyptic double vision, to see the world enslaved and to envision the world liberated. And as we know from the most famous tome of apocalyptic literature in our Bible, that would be the revelation given to the political prisoner John of Patmos, this tradition of highly symbolic discourse is full of bizarre images and codes, such as, for example, Revelation 6's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, that imperial cavalry from hell. <clears throat> now, meditating on these four horsemen of war, bring us to Mark's own most explicit experiment with apocalyptic discourse, which of course we find in Mark 13, known as the Little Apocalypse. This is Jesus' longest unbroken discourse in Mark's story, but it is carefully paralleled in the overall, overall architecture of the gospel 
with um, the long discourse on parables in back in Mark 4. Mark structures uh, the Sermon of Mark 13 around a series of warnings, as you see here, that are stated in the first half of the discourse and then restated in the second half of the discourse, shown here in yellow. These refrains make it clear that the issue Mark is most concerned about is official deception during wartime, which the Jesus community is being invited to carefully discern and resist. So the um, repeated refrain, watch out, beware, when you hear, when you see, um, the one who endures. Now, many of us believe that Mark's gospel was written at the height of the Roman Jewish War of 66 to 70 in the Common Era, about which we've spoken a little bit this week. This was obviously an apocalyptic moment in the life of the early Christian community and indeed of the Judean people as a whole. Uh, Jerusalem was about to be under siege and the Romans were conducting a slash and burn campaign um, north to south from Galilee marching toward the Holy City trying to retake what the rebels had for such a brief moment um, liberated. So note how Mark warns Christians not to be taken in by the propaganda of war making. Not only the propaganda of the Roman oppressors, but also the propaganda of the Judean nationalist rebels who were saying, now's the time to come defend the mother country and to take up arms against the oppressor. But at the conclusion of chapter 13, Mark deploys another symbolic convention of ap apocalyptic literature, the discourse of parable. So Jesus' final warning is to stay alert for the kairos moment, that critical time of discernment. Here in this parable, Jesus' last parable in Mark, the world is metaphorized into a household whose owner has gone away. We servants have been left with the task of caretaking Jesus' vision of a, quote, house for all peoples. Remember his Isianic sermon at the cleansing of the temple back in Mark 11. But you know, it's not easy trying to maintain the house against the storms of empire. We don't have answers for all the world's questions. And we don't know when or how or even if the architect will return and put an end to the suffering. I want you to pay careful attention in the second part of this parable to the hours of the night watch evening, midnight, cockcrow, and dawn. Because we'll see these again very shortly in Mark's story. And then at the close of the sermon, 
Mark turns from the story world of Jesus and the disciples and looks directly out at his audience, the world of we who are readers, looking directly at us. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Mark 13, 37. So we too are included in the exhortation to keep vigil at the door, to stay awake with Jesus in a world that has become, well, Gethsemane. This apocalyptic parable will be decoded in the very next chapter of Mark's Gospel because the Passion narrative begins in Mark 14 with a community going underground and then there is an anointing by a woman who, unlike the men, seems to understand where this story is going. And then a Passover meal. You remember that Peter emerges from the Seder vowing that he will never abandon Jesus, Mark 14, 31, to which Jesus responds darkly that he, Peter, above all, will take refuge in denial. After the meal, Jesus, now a hunted fugitive, invites his disciples to come pray with him in a garden named Gethsemane. Jesus is struggling to summon the strength to face the music. Mark's narrative portrays Jesus not as an aloof demigod, serenely reflecting on the mystery of human pathos. Quite the contrary. Jesus is profoundly distressed that it has all come to this. He does not want to face the consequences of his resistance to empire. He prays that the hour might pass, 1435. He hopes desperately that there might be some other way to change the world. Please remove this cup, Mark 1436. And yet he remains awake. And he hopes that the disciples will remain awake with him, but they cannot. Are you asleep? Were you not strong enough to stay awake? Mark 14, 37. Of all the many queries posed to the disciples by Jesus the great interlocutor, this is the most unsettling because of its resonance with those final instructions in his apocalyptic parable. Gethsemane is the culmination of the discipleship story in Mark. After this, it will collapse as Jesus is arrested and hauled away and the disciples disappear. Gethsemane reiterates the task of the parable to stay awake to the horror so that we won't miss the hope. The Kairos moment is that which plants seeds of renewal, even during the darkest midnight of empire. This vigil in the garden, in a world which has become Gethsemane, is Mark's central metaphor for how disciples will be able to navigate the difficult terrain of empire in every age. It defines apocalyptic faith 
which challenges denial and animates imagination. But it's so difficult. So here, after three tries, the disciples in Mark's story are still sound asleep, no doubt dreaming of better times. And indeed, for all of us who endeavor to follow the way, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And when the dark night of history arrives, we're either too busy or too distracted or too tired or feel too powerless or maybe we just miss it altogether. So it is in Mark's story that when the powers come for Jesus in the garden, all the disciples can think to do is fight or flee both of which merely end up strengthening the imperial hand. Mark 47 through 50. In Mark's story, only Jesus will embrace the Via Crucis. Which brings us to Peter. Now, Peter is truly the patron saint of all of us who try and fail, who stumble and equivocate and hesitate. Consider Mark's terrible and poignant vignette of Peter's famous denial, which follows immediately upon the scuffle in the garden. Mark 50, uh, 14, 53 and following narrates the scene in one of these split screens that we were talking about earlier. On one hand, inside the courtroom, Jesus is standing trial before the Sanhedrin accused of both heresy and treason. Outside, the disciple Peter stands anonymously in the courtyard, unable to follow Jesus into the dock, but unwilling to abandon him altogether. It's the best he can do, given his conflicted loyalties and his fears. Have you ever felt like that? Mark tells us that Peter was standing side by side with the imperial guards, warming himself at their fire. How revealing. If we can't follow Jesus sooner or later, we stand confused and anxious, warming ourselves uneasily at the imperial fire. Divided in heart, paralyzed in body. We especially who enjoy race and or class and or gender privileges in first world societies, we know all too much about this moment. But then comes the bitter moment of truth. When we are challenged by bystanders to reveal our true loyalties. Are we disciples or law-abiding citizens? Are we part of the resistance renewal movement? Or will we stay loyal to empire? We stammer and stutter in a thousand different ways, squeezed by conflicting loyalties in the imperial vice, knowing always that we have a get-out-of-jail-free card if we just toe the line. 
This is Mark's dramatic denouement, in which Peter makes a fateful choice to take refuge in the shadow world of denial, to forfeit the truth about ourselves in order to save our asses. This is the deal that empire teaches us to cut. The Faustian bargain that Jesus warned us against when he called us to take up our crosses in that discipleship catechism we looked at yesterday. Jesus understood perfectly the unforgiving psychological and political character of denial. If we flee from the consequences of discipleship, it will be into the arms of imperial ignominy. Unable to follow Jesus, however, neither can Peter pass as an innocent bystander. So, famously, his cover is blown. And now it's the fisherman who endures an interrogation, while at the very same moment Jesus is confessing the human one before the high court. Peter plays dumb about his involvement in the movement. And then Mark says flatly, Peter began to curse his life. And who wouldn't at such a dead end? Curse religion or politics or history or one's parents or friends or one's church or one's own choices. Curse everything that conspires to bring us to such moments. Is this really something being, being done to us or by us? It's amazing how much classic Christian art tries to depict this moment. Finally, cornered and cowering, Peter swears his oath of dissociation, the inevitable fruit of denial. It's almost dawn, and a rooster's hoarse croon drifts hauntingly in the sudden stillness. The last of the hours of the night watch Jesus had foretold in his apocalyptic parable. And then slowly, like a stake being driven into his heart, Peter's soul begins to implode and he breaks down in bitter weeping. I wonder how our churches would be different if central to our iconography was a picture of Peter weeping. His inconsolable sobbing echoes through the ages, resonating whenever we believers have betrayed the vision we hold dearest, which surely is often. Throughout the two millennia of the Christian era, it has continued to well up as the church struggles with its own apostasy. This is our trail of tears. Today, in the twilight of a different imperial courtyard, this lament again lodges in our Christian hearts. We too have tried to follow Jesus at a distance, 
and built some mighty fine churches in the process. But now we too are being confronted by our conflicted loyalties. In an age of climate catastrophe, we are slowly realizing our denial. But that's the very purpose of Mark's story. To assure us that here, in this worst of moments, paralyzed and ashamed before our wailing wall, right here, right now, the gospel invites us again to practice apocalyptic faith and to reconstruct our journey of discipleship. Our task remains as articulated in the apocalyptic parable and the Garden of Gethsemane to resist the imperial coma, to stay awake to both the horror and to the hope. So I want to contend in this last of our five core samples that Mark's version of apocalyptic faith and the imprints of apocalyptic symbolism are all over this part of Mark's text is an invitation to what we might call insomniac theology and politics. Now I do not use this metaphor lightly because I am someone who suffers from a taxing complex of sleep disorders. So it's no fun not sleeping. And I understand that the notion of keeping vigil is strange and that it could be construed as yet another religious rationalization for doing nothing or trying to change anything to abandon the struggle within history for some blessed hope that will rescue us from history. But that's not what staying awake is about in the apocalyptic tradition. I've uh, made several references to Martin Luther King this week, our greatest American prophet. I want to make one more. On March 31st, 1968, Passion Sunday, as it happened. Less than a week before, he was assassinated in Memphis. As I said a week ago, uh, almost, early, uh, almost 50 years ago. Martin Luther King preached his last sermon uh, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. How symbolic. The Vietnam War was at its peak he was amidst campaigning for a new poor people's campaign. And he'd already been drawn deeply into the struggle of low-income workers in Memphis. His sermon was entitled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. And his text was from the book of Revelation. This great remaining awake sermon, you can find it online, suggests that true apocalyptic faith holds non-violent vigil amidst the storms of imperial history, not passively, but actively. King yet again called the church to remain awake 
to persistent racism, to the awful Indochina war, and to widespread economic disparity at home and abroad. On the other hand, he called us to remain awake to God's dream of justice. And King did so at a time when he just as easily could have taken his Nobel Peace Prize and his modest civil rights gains and called it a career, settled for one of the many prestigious academic or board positions being offered to him at that very moment. Instead, however, King pressed his campaign against war, racism, and poverty, what he called the giant triplets of American pathology. Exercising his apocalyptic faith into the midnight of his national crisis. And he paid the terrible cost less than one week later. So what is our historic crisis? And how do we practice apocalyptic insomnia? As I alluded to at the outset of this morning's talk, I believe our greatest challenge of our generation is to stay awake to the interlocking social and ecological crises of climate catastrophe. But because <clears throat> we're dealing here with what theologian Michael Northcutt a few years ago called the politics of a slow catastrophe, a hurricane here, a wildfire there, ice caps and small island nations disappearing out of sight and out of mind, climate refugees coming ashore on other nations' coasts. It's exceedingly difficult to stay awake to, particularly because to truly awaken to its demands would require radical change from all of us personally and politically. This is Paul Kingsnorth. He's one of the most thoughtful ecological writers in the UK. And he uh, <clears throat> published the following about 10 years ago. Sitting on the desk in front of me is a set of graphs. The horizontal axis of each graph is, identi graph is identical. It represents time from the years 1750 to 2000. These graphs show variously human population levels, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, exploitation of fisheries, destruction of tropical forests, paper consumption, number of motor vehicles, water use, rate of species extinction, the totality of the gross domestic product of the human economy, etc., etc. <clears throat> what grips me most about these graphs, and graphs don't usually grip me, is that though they all show very different things, they have an almost identical shape. A line begins on the left of the page, rising gradually as it moves to the right, and then in the last inch or so, around the year 1950, it suddenly veers steeply upwards. The root cause of all these trends is the same a rapacious human economy which is bringing the world very swiftly to the brink of chaos. We know this. Some of us even attempt to stop it from happening. And yet all of these trends 
are continuing to get rapidly worse. End quote. The statistical curve that Kings North talks about is called the hockey stick effect, something you Canadians know something about. Here is that same curve across 24 different economic and ecological indices, from habitat destruction to number of McDonald's restaurants worldwide to resource exhaustion, so-called peak everything. The last few years are seeing an increasing intensification of every single trend. For example, 2015 was another year in which levels of dominant greenhouse gases reached new peaks. The same with ocean warming and acidification, which are accelerating melting polar caps, which in turn leads to sea level rise. Just ask folks in Louisiana or Micronesia. Our dis disastrous re-engineering of the planet has invoked a new definition of hubris. We are in the age of the Anthropocene, symbolizing that the influence of human behavior on Earth's atmosphere constitutes a new geologic epoch. And of course, the most dramatic hockey stick of all is the surface temperature rise of the planet. These are, by the way, all government statistics which tend to be conservative. Last year was the hottest on record, and so was this last November. Friends, it is all unfolding before our eyes. Our younger colleagues, the rising generation, feels this keenly. As this cartoon Riley puts it, science and religion after being at war for four centuries seem to have finally found something to agree upon, namely the fact that bad human behavior inevitably brings on the end of the world as we know it which is why apocalyptic themes now saturate the secular literature, from Ed Ayer's God's Last Offer to Derek Jensen's Endgame. Gus Spate is a respected mainstream environmental policy leader from Yale, and he summarized the numbing scientific data about this historic crisis succinctly. And I want to invite one of you in the room there simply to read this summary, if you would, nice and loud for the recording. How, how serious is the threat to the environment? Here is one measure of the problem. All we have to do to destroy the planet's climate and biota and leave a ruined world to our children and our grandchildren is to keep doing exactly what we are doing today. Just continue to release greenhouse gases at the current rates. Just continue to impoverish ecosystems and release toxic chemicals at the current rates. And the world in the latter part of the century won't be fit to live in. No, really. At a temperature rise of the planet of 4 degrees Celsius, it's estimated that two-thirds of the planet will be uninhabitable. Since he wrote this 10 years ago, the scientific prognosis has become increasingly dire, the timetable for change increasingly urgent. 10 years ago, Spett was announcing an all-hands-on-deck plea. 
but most of us barely budged. And we have kept doing exactly what we were doing. More recently, even a pop rag like New York Magazine, the epitome of the popular press, offered this grim cover feature last summer. And it points out that all the anticipated apocalyptic scenarios are no longer in the future. They're already being endured by the poor at home and abroad, New Orleans, Houston, Haiti, and abroad. The poor who feel the effects of climate catastrophe first and worst. And now, in this last month, we've just endured them here in our home watershed. The only way to avoid these inconvenient facts is to simply deny them and carry on life as usual. And unfortunately, denial is something we are very practiced at in our culture and tragically in our churches. But our churches are supposed to be keeping vigil at the door of history. We're not supposed to even need a wake-up call. Ah, but Mark tells us that disciples sleep. A few months ago, you Lutherans will know, on All Hallows' Eve, we commemorated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous protest, tacking 95 theses onto Wittenberg's door. Luther was publicly naming what he saw as excesses and apostasies in his church, an action that eventually led to the world historical changes of the Protestant Reformation of which we are all children directly and indirectly. But what about us? Are we not in need of a new reformation, one that will face squarely the interlocking social and ecological crises that are stalking our history? That will bring the gospel to bear on the way of life that has painted our civilization into a corner? In fact, a group of international theologians drew up a new 95 thesis for an eco-reformation led by my friend Ulrich Ducro of Heidelberg, shown here, who we hosted here last November. Have Lutherans, or the rest of us, awoken to this new Kairos moment of eco-reformation? And I cannot not say that Canada is as deeply implicated in this crisis as any of us, exemplified by the unconscionable tar sands extraction in northern Alberta and Saskatchewan, which is turning vast, lush, boreal forest into a barren industrial landscape of open pit mines and toxic tailing ponds, the kind of desperate resource extraction that is driving us into a dark future and does so because of our compulsive dependence on burning fossil fuels, which we do every single day, driving hither and yon. This historic moment of crisis calls for nothing less than apocalyptic faith. Through this week, I've had the opportunity, thank you, Bill, 
to work with you through a number of core samples of Mark's gospel. I've stressed the social context of both ourselves as readers and of the texts themselves, trying to draw connections to both the personal and political nature of Mark's call to discipleship. We've studied Jesus' invitation to go catch some big fish. We've looked at why his healing practices, the work with political bodies, was co so controversial in the body politics of his time. We've examined his wilderness feeding demonstration project of Sabbath economics. And we've wrestled with his discipleship catechism of re redistributive justice. And as we've done this this week, we here in California have been dealing with the continuing consequences of climate crisis, very up close and personal. And so have you, whether you know it or not. Today I've made no bones <clears throat> about what we call, about the fact that we all need to be watching for as we keep vigil with Jesus in a world that has become Gethsemane. Climate catastrophe challenges us to awaken and become animated in new ways, no matter how much or how little we've done to date, because it's more than ever an all-hands-on-deck moment, and not just in Houston or Puerto Rico or Southern California. But from Mark's perspective, only apocalyptic faith can bear the weight of this history. Only apocalyptic faith can offer good news into the teeth of this storm. I believe this is our Kairos moment with its amazing chance to be part of a new reformation. But no more business as usual, friends. What better reason, what better reason to be a Christian today than to help equip our churches to become insomniac communities engaged in this Kairos moment? After all, as Mark insists at the end of his story, Jesus is still going on before us, still calling us, even and especially Peter, Mark 16, 7. Peter, the poster boy of denial, that would be us, especially summoned afresh to resume the discipleship narrative. Jesus, Mark's Jesus, is not in the tomb, but in the womb, in the womb of a new story, our story, our world, our world which, as the Apostle Paul famously put it, is still groaning in travail, waiting for the apocalypsis of the children of God, waiting for us to wake up and show up.
as I mentioned, the rising generation, our younger colleagues, our fellow uh, folks uh, under 40, most of whom aren't showing up at our churches. They have a term for all of this. These are people who we work with intensively in our, in our work. The, um, the term that comes out of hip-hop is stay woke. And it's articulated in one of the earliest missives from the Apostle Paul. And again, I would um, invite uh, one of you in the room there to read this as our uh, benediction to this uh, fifth study. Would you please read from 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 6. But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. First Thessalonians 5, 46. Amen and amen. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>